0: Hello, and welcome to the director's role. Oh, fuck. Okay. (laughs) It's been a while. (laughs) Please don't tell. No, no, no. Don't say that I told you so. I just heard a rumor from a friend. I don't say that it's true i'll just leave that up to you if you don't believe i'll understand you recall a girl that's been in nearly every song this is what i heard of course the story could be wrong she's the one i've been told She's wearing a band of gold Peggy Sue got married not long ago Hello and welcome to the Director's Wall podcast Season 2 Coppola cast I am one of your hosts, AJ Gonzalez And I'm the other host, Brian Connolly Cool, alright Back in the podcast saddle again Still quarantined, but things are things are looking up. Or uh, self shelter in place, whatever. I only have one one vaccine shot right now, so uh, I'm still I'm still hanging out at home. I have both, uh, so I'm going to
1: leave the house very soon and give everybody
0: a hug. That's the dream. <laughs> What a wonderful world it will be.
1: <laughs> I think they, they say it's going to be like the roaring 20s. Like th- th- this will also be considered the roaring 20s because once we've gone through this hump of, of COVID and lockdown and quarantine and social distancing, it's going to be like they predict one huge party
0: for like years, like a party that lasts years. I'd be up for that. Yeah. And, uh... Something I've seen people point out is, you know, there aren't many movies from the twenties that cover the Spanish flu pandemic. So in that spirit, we should also have no movies that cover the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic.
1: Oh man. I, there's gonna be so many terrible indie movies that are like watching a Zoom. It'll be like what we're looking at right now, but there'll be like a ro- it'll be like a romance and or divorce or whatever over Zoom.
0: That sounds miserable. <laughs> oh. I don't, don't want to see that. They, they already have those movies, but they're horror movies with teens like Unfriended. And they're terrible. They're all bad. Even they're terrible. Like, we I never do know these. where to look. I'm old. I'm an old elder millennial, I guess. That's yeah. what that's what white people over 50 tell me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we will have then movies where people over 40 are talking to each other on Zoom. Oh,
1: God that sounds terrible but yeah you're totally (laughs) right that's gonna be what it is or there'll be like some yeah some romance where it's like i love you but i had to stay home yeah (laughs) yeah let's just pretend it never happened i don't want to see a movie where everyone's wearing a mask let's just move let's just move past that let's just pretend it was you know just a weird year a lost year i don't know um so before we get into this movie Each of us is drinking a Coppola wine. Uh, I'm drinking one that we've covered before, but it's very good, so it's worth mentioning again. The Diamond Collection, Francis Coppola Diamond Collection, Cabernet Somnion, 2019. And man, it's good. And I don't need to read the back because we did on some other episode already, but it's, it's a good bold red. Definitely, if you ever buy these Coppola reds, what I learned is you really need to let it breathe for a while. So, like, open it up like an hour before you drink it. Or if you're fancy and have a decanter, is that how you say it? I think use one of those things. Yeah, you know, like you see the Italian restaurant, just get like a, the woven basket around it and it's full of just
0: the, yeah, yeah. Bread.
1: Just like get one of those, pour your wine and let it sit, and man, it's good. So, it's starting to get hot here in Texas. So, red wine isn't the best for that, but. It's what I had on hand, so it's what I'm drinking.
0: That's why I am. Uh, I decided to drink a white wine today, uh, but I did not let it chill long enough, <laughs> so it's. Uh, it's fool. okay. We might have had this before, maybe not this year. It's the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Sauvignon Blanc 2019. Uh, I have changed the light bulbs in my guest room (laughs) slash podcasting studio, so I'm able to read the back of the label. Let's see, it delivers perfume of tangerine, pink grapefruit, and honeysuckle, uh, followed by juicy flavors of tropical fruit, zesty citrus, and a hint of minerals.
1: Delicious
0: Mm. with grilled fish, spring greens with uh, fruit and goat cheese.
1: Hmm.
0: Spring greens, all right. Um, <laughs> well, I've got none of those. It's an all right wine. It probably would be better if I let it chill longer. If you're supposed to chill white wines, I think you are. I think yes, I read that are. in Google once. <laughs> um, I don't much care for the tropical fruits, huh? Okay, uh, which, which I definitely taste here. Yeah, yeah, definitely get a fruity, tropical light flavor to it. Um, and it's all right. I like the white wines. It's a bit sweet. So I don't know if I will tear through this whole bottle as quickly as I would a red. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I would recommend this with some goat cheese.
1: Yeah, these couple of wines, I got to say, it's been great. Like I enjoyed when we did all the, the scotches for Shyamalan. But I have been enjoying kind of the Coppola wines just because I feel I've always seen them, but never tried them. And now that we're going through all of them, I would definitely just, when I wanted a good wine, would buy a of wine knowing that they, I enjoy them.
0: Yeah, and I always feel, I always felt like wines were special, like for special occasions only, even if it was like a $10, $12 bottle of wine that I got at the grocery store. But uh, having gone through the different kinds of styles, reds and the whites, like I'm more familiar, I feel slightly more confident, but I feel more confident about just picking out a bottle of wine like, oh, we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have steaks tonight, so yeah, I'm gonna get this red. I'm gonna get this merlot to go with the steaks. <laughs> and it's, and if it's a, it's a copola wine, so it's not too expensive. Yeah, uh, and it's gonna taste. Good just on a regular like a regular Saturday. You just decided to have steaks and wine today. Nothing too fancy. Here's the wine to drink just uh on a regular day. It doesn't have to be for a fancy <laughs> special occasion. We're such
1: grown-ups now. You know, who'd have thought we'd be into wine, talking about wine.
0: So I'm sure this is the part
1: of the podcast everyone skips over just to get to the movie. I don't care. <laughs> I enjoy it. <laughs>
0: We're here to tell you how the world is wrong The world is wrong about
1: Mad Dog Time, The, the Paperboy, paper boy. Mordecai After last season, the, the World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films The
0: World is Wrong About Available on Paperhouse Network, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: (laughs) So, please tell us about the movie we're doing this week.
0: The movie we're doing today is Peggy Sue Got Married from 1986. If you've listened to us before, you know that we always spoil everything that happens in a movie. doesn't really matter with famous movies like The Godfather or movies where the ending is... uh, Very esoteric, like Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's, uh, you know, there's twists and things in Peggy Sue Got Married. So if you haven't seen it before and you don't want to have a a plot twist spoiled, then uh, maybe skip over this part or watch Peggy Sue Got Married, then come back, listen to this. It is currently streaming on Stars. Ooh, I didn't even know stars still existed. Apparently, they do, and they've got Peggy Sue got married, which is great because this movie is kind of going out of print. A new copy sells on Amazon on DVD for like thirty plus dollars. You can get some uh, cheap used copies though, and that's that's good. But uh, yeah, you can't just buy a copy from. Barnes and Noble or Best Buy or wherever Target wherever people still buy movies. So and it's a shame because this is this is a really good movie. I agree. It's very good. All right. So Peggy Sue is Kathleen Turner. She's playing a middle-aged woman or woman in her forties uh, going to her twenty-fifth high school reunion with her daughter, played by Helen Hunt, and. She decides to wear her prom dress. So she's wearing a prom dress from like 1960s style. And she has been recently separated and is going to get divorced from Nicolas Cage, who we see on TV in a uh, like a crazy uh, discount electronics uh, sales commercial where he's crazy. Charlie, you know, selling <laughs> the <laughs> Selling TV like Magnavox TV for $1,000 and this VCR for only $300. I'm going to go out of business. (laughs) It's great. Uh, So she goes to the reunion and feels very self-conscious because everyone else is having like great lives. And the nerd in high school is now rich and everyone's still married and whatnot. And she gets uh, selected for, like, prom queen of the reunion or whatever. The nerd that grows up to be rich is, like, you know, uh, most accomplished or whatever. And Peggy Suga gets picked to be the queen of the reunion. She's up on stage. She's feeling overwhelmed by everything. And she faints and wakes up in 1960, in her senior year of high school. After getting reoriented, finding out she is in 1960, she thinks maybe she's dead, maybe she's dreaming, like whatever, she's just gonna go with it. And all the people from the reunion are there playing their teenage versions of themselves. And she has to decide now how to live her senior year of high school knowing the way her life is going to go, knowing the way her relationship with Nicholas Cage is going to go. And he's like, just so like crazy about her and wants to get married right away, but she knows how the marriage is going to turn out. So she thinks maybe we should uh, go ahead and break up with him now and pursue the like uh, bookish beatnik arty RD guy, uh, see what he's all about. And, and the nerd guy, see, see what he's all about. And then at a certain point she gets tired of living her high school life again. She goes to visit her grandparents, tells them her problems. They believe her and her grandfather says like, don't worry, I can help you out. So he takes her to his like Elks Lodge meeting Mm -hmm. (laughs) where they perform uh, a ritual to like summon up whatever spirit, great spirit to send her back to her time. And it looks like for a minute the ceremony worked, but actually Nicolas Cage broke in and kidnapped her out because he thought they were going to vaporize her or something. (laughs) And he takes her to, like, it's not a greenhouse, but it's, uh, like, we see part of it through uh, a window, so it looks like it's a greenhouse. Uh And there's a storm going, and he professes his love to her, and... She uh, professes her love to him and decides to take the path she already took and have the family and life she already had, even though she knows what is in store for her and how it might not end well. And then it, she wakes up and she's in the hospital from, from fainting at the beginning of the movie and old... Forty-year-old Nicolas Cage is there by her bed, and they talk, and he professes his love for her again, and she professes her love for him, and decides let's let us let us give uh, this marriage another shot, even though it maybe not maybe maybe it'll work out, maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't, but let, let's give another try, and that's Peggy Sue got married
1: yeah uh it's a great movie it's very good i remember watching this movie as a kid it played on cable tv constantly yeah like the late 80s and early 90s like it was on tv all the time and i remember really liking it even as like an eight-year-old
0: thinking this was a pretty good movie me too i watched it a lot as a kid i watched it with i remember watching it with my mom and then i saw it in parts whenever it aired on like Encore, or Cinemax, or HBO, or whatever, and I remember liking it then, and I like it now. Mm-hmm. It's good. Um, I it's not, and it's a different kind of funny from what I remember as a kid. It's a very like wistful, nostalgic film. It's a more it's more sad than I
1: remembered as a kid. I don't remember it being sad, but now that I am forty. My high school reunion, 25th reunion, is going to be in three years. So I'll be Peggy Sue Age in three years from now. And it's just like it has this kind of sad, like all the scenes of her when she's back and she's like, oh, like when she freaks out when her grandmother calls because she hasn't talked to her grandmother, you know, since her grandmother died and just sort of like all of that kind of, you know, like being able to go back and be around these people or be around your family in a certain way that you can never do again, once you've moved out and you're grown up, like it just has this like intensely wistful kind of like sadness to it. That's great that I didn't pick up on as a kid when my life was just fine because I was, you know, a child.
0: Um. (laughs) When I was a kid, I really liked the, uh, and I still like now, but, uh, you know, I feel it uh, deeper on a more emotional level now but when i was a kid i really responded to like the fish out of water element to it like and how different everything was back then the fashion and the music and the cars uh so and it's it sounds like and you watch it and you can't help but think about back to the future yeah, which would have been released released the year before and was a huge hit In 1985, and Peggy Sue got married has the same gimmick, right? It's like time travel back to, you know, 25, 30 years before the 80s. But it's totally different because Back to the Future is about a teenager meeting his parents when they're young and realizing that they were kids too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Peggy Sue got married is the adult woman going back. And living her teenage life again, knowing everything that is going to happen, like, historically, but knowing everything that's going to happen emotionally as well. And then having the maturity of a full adult, you know, 40-year-old woman. That's
1: great. It's really good. It's very, it's a very powerful emotional movie but it's also really good comedy. I like I like movies like this that are kind of sci-fi but not really like they, they they don't explain the time travel. It feels very very more like a fantasy I guess than a science fiction thing. Like whereas in Back to the Future they explain it, you know, sort of with the flex capacitor and the DeLorean and everything. But this one it really, literally is she like falls asleep sort of like a reverse Rip Van Winkle and wakes up 25 years earlier. Um so and it's, it's interesting because this is a part of, again, that era we've been talking about where Coppola supposedly was broke and just made the movies that, you know, he had to make to make the money back that he lost with, uh, from making one from the heart. And with Zoetrope kind of going bust. Um, do, do you have sort of insight in sort of how this movie came to him? Because he didn't write it. He didn't, you know, he's not... You know, it, like this feels more so than his other movies we've seen so far. That he feels more like a movie maybe that was given to him, but it definitely is still good though. It still has his touches, and I did read that originally Jonathan demi was going to direct this movie, starring Deborah Winger. That and, is that is true. And then he dropped out, and then it was going to be directed by Penny Marshall. And then she, for whatever reason, couldn't figure out how to make it. And then it came to Coppola. And then it, instead of Deborah Winger, it was Kathleen Turner. And then, of course, he casts his nephew, Nicholas Cage, and his daughter, Sofia Coppola, who, who plays uh, <coughs> Kathleen Turner's little sister. And, uh, and then makes it kind of a Coppola movie. Um, and, there's very, and we'll go into it. There's definitely parts that feel very much like a Coppola movie. But at the same time, you could totally see how this was like maybe a movie fast tracked because of the success of Back to the Future. And so, do you know, like, did he, like, did someone to say, yeah, why, why, I wonder why it ended up to him. Like, how did, how did it get into the hands of the Coppola?
0: So, yeah, this movie began on its own as a vehicle for Deborah Winger, who had just, she was in an Officer and a Gentleman in like 82. So she was like really big at the time and so this movie was tailored for her with jonathan demi yeah then he drops out then penny marshall drops out and deborah winger is still attached and says she's frustrated and says like just like find a good director someone like francis ford coppola and it turns (laughs) out at this exact moment coppola had some projects in production like he was deciding uh to finally tackle a biopic about Uh, Tucker about Preston Mm -hmm. Tucker the automaker which didn't happen for a few years but he decided like well he's going to go ahead and do it now because he had been doing jobs for hire but he had not one but two big loan payments due very like impending and they were both like multi-million dollars and (laughs) he needed a job and then hey do you want to direct this movie called Peggy Sue Got Married Yes, sure, please, I will direct it. (laughs) I need the money. And he takes the job. He doesn't rewrite the script, at least that's not to any significant degree. In the uh, biography, Francis Ford Coppola, Filmmaker's Life by Michael Shoemaker, this Pegasus Get Married only gets a couple of pages. There's not a lot of time spent on it. You really get the impression this was more so than the Outsiders more so than the Cotton Club, like a job for hire. But Coppola still decided, you know, he's got to put his stamp on it. He's got to make the best possible version of this movie that he can make. Deborah Winger got sick and had to drop out of of the movie, which was a I imagine would have been frustrating for her, waiting for this movie to get made and then. She can't. Uh, so then Kathleen Turner is hired, who had just been in Romancing the Stone, which was another huge hit from like 1984. And she was in Body Heat earlier. And for Kathleen Turner, this movie was was a, a bit of a change in her on-screen persona. Cause she had been playing like very Mature, like, sultry characters. Like, Body Heat is a movie that's basically a modern-day Double Indemnity, and she's playing the seductive Barbara Stanwyck character that seduces William Hurt with her Body Heat. I've never seen Body Heat. It's it's good, but, like, if you've seen Double Indemnity, you know, like, man, like, don't trust this woman, man. (laughs) I mean, like, at the time, I imagine having I would have a different reaction to it than watching it now having seen so many movies with a femme fatale
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: so Peggy Sue got married was a change of direction for her where she's playing an older kind of melancholy woman and then the like innocent teen version of herself and uh, she and Coppola had a sort of rocky start to their working relationship. Coppola was still very, still with his electronic cinema. He wanted to direct from his van called The Silverfish. <laughs> He'd watch everything on monitors and then radio directions to people. And Kathleen Turner said, Okay, you'll direct from the van and I'll act from my trailer. <laughs> <laughs> so he decided he would. Direct on set. So, and this
1: is the movie that pulled him back on set.
0: Yeah. Wow. Which is the place to be. But I mean, he made Rumblefish from the trailer. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, he can't help but make it a Coppola movie, casts Cousin Nicholas, his daughter Sophia, and he's got the whole gang back together. He's got uh, Dean Tavalaris. And yep. uh, Alex Tevalaris working together again. Barry Malkin doing yeah. the editing. He has a new cinematographer that ended up doing a pretty good job, though not maybe an obvious job. See, his name is Jordan Cronenwith. And he ended up getting an Oscar nomination for his work. Like, yeah, it, it looks good. It's just not yeah, like... It, it wouldn't be strike me as very like obvious
1: but he i mean that guy uh, jordan Cronenweth, like he is the dp on blade runner you know and that's Ooh. what he did you know just a few years before this and stopped making sense so he uh has done you know movies that are considered very good looking movies and uh what's interesting too is he also like he is a person who collaborated with jonathan demi like he was on citizens band and like I just said, stop making sense. So I wonder if he was left over from when it was Demi and Coppola was like, well, let's keep this guy, keep the same cinematographer uh, and he will work with him again. Coppola will use, the, use him again for gardens of stone. So it's, uh, I think clearly the rela- relationship worked for, for at least a few movies. And it does have, it does feel like a couple of movie. Like it, it's like, like you can say, you can tell that it seems like a movie that just kind of came across his desk and he just jumped on it. But I really love so far with all these movies in his supposed, you know, like down period, he's always trying to make it really, really good. And still he's not just like, you've seen movies that directors, you know, make because they've hit on hard times and they're usually you can tell because they're just terrible and rushed and poorly made and like there's no passion but coppola still tries to make it the best movie he can in that moment in his life like which is so such an admirable feat like he's the person that works like the crappy job but does the best version of that crappy job so it's like he may get a job at the mall folding pants but he will fold pants better than anybody and I, I know that's how you are too, A.J. That's how I am too. No like, matter what job I've ever had in my life, whether I hated it or not,
0: I always made sure it was the best job I could ever do at that time. No one worked the denim wall at at the Gap outlet better than me. And then they <laughs> created a position, denim specialist, expecting me to take it, and I did not. <laughs> oh, No, because I would because ha- then I would have I would have to work nights and weekends and be there till like 2 a.m. folding (laughs) denim and I said no so then they put me in the fitting room and I ran the hell out of the fitting room but but Coppola is like that he is he would have been the the denim
1: expert like he can't help but be a great filmmaker no matter what he's doing and like this movie has So many couple of touches, like you had, the very first shot is is very much, feels like a one from the heart sort of shot where it's a fake mirror, where you have Kathleen Turner, where you're supposedly looking from the point of view behind her in the mirror, but it's actually done with doubles, where you had a fake Kathleen Turner and and the props were doubled just so he can have this crazy mirror shot without a reflection. And I can't imagine how much more extra rehearsal it takes to do a shot like that. And then they do a shot similar at the very end. So that feels very Coppola. Then the first 20 minutes of this movie is all at the reunion. And that feels so much like the beginning of the Godfather where it's like, here's this big party where all the characters are at and you're meeting everybody as the, as the camera kind of goes from one little couple to like all these moments. And like, that's such a Coppola way to, start a movie. Like, that's also kind of how the director's cut of The Outsiders starts, where everybody's all hanging out together,
0: and you just meet everybody all at once. And the characters, they're fully themselves because they all already know each other. And yeah, the cast of this movie is crazy. Like, every, there's so many famous
1: people before they were famous. Like, like, Jim Carrey, this is hot off the heels of Once Bitten, his first sort of real movie. And it's crazy to think that there's there's only one movie that stars Nicolas Cage and Jim Carrey together and it's great and I wish there was more of that in the world. Like it it works so well, especially like the scenes they have together like when they're in like their little duop group and they're both they're both like hammy in their own specific way. Like Nicolas Cage is so Nicolas Cage's movie and we'll get into that and Jim Carrey is so Jim Carrey, but they're not like doesn't seem like they're fighting, you know, for screen time. They really like complement each other.
0: Very well, I, f- I feel. One thing I was uh, expecting watching it as an adult because I haven't watched it since I was a kid, and I remembered, but I remember Jim Carrey being in it as like the funny guy, and Nicolas Cage's whole performance, which I want to save because boy, are we going to talk about that? <laughs> is like a like a, a very serious goof. And so, so I was just thinking, like, well, the, you're going to have like two crazy guy performances, two like I'm the funny guy performances, and they're like friends, and there's no one to like balance out the other. So this is probably going to feel weird, but it doesn't because Nicolas Cage is playing his character with his wild choices so straight. Yeah. That Jim Carrey it has no problem being being the the class clown. Yeah. Outspoken guy there's no one in his way. And then since Nicholas Cage is being serious. There's not too much, uh, too much silliness going on.
1: And what's great is it's not a subdued, it's not like a written clown for Jim Carrey. Like it's him doing the Jim Carrey thing, even back then, even in 1986. Like there's a, when you first see him in the past, he does his little like taking his arm and putting it behind his head move. He does his fake vomit thing that he did in Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. So he's still like got his very unique kind of, you know, like plastic man sort of comedy that he's doing uh, even back then, even as a young, young man. Uh, It's great to watch him in this. Like he, it's like he showed up fully formed. (laughs) (laughs) Like Jim Carrey is Jim Carrey, even then, like it wasn't a thing that happened over time. Like he is so, confidently himself in this movie uh like we've like we how we've always loved him you know um and then yeah Joan Allen is great like seeing her as a young person because she always seemed like 46 to me because I just remember her from like Pleasantville and uh Face Off uh, also with Nicolas Cage and uh but here she is like playing a teenager and she's sort of like the kind of like the bookish almost like a nerd also in a way like
0: just kind of the more uptight of the friend group yeah she's wearing the big like uh horn rimmed uh glasses like that were in style in the late 50s early 60s
1: and then as the cool rebel is kevin j o'connor who is great in like the mummy franchise and in there will be blood he plays daniel day lewis's like possible brother like that kind of like that weird character that shows up halfway in that movie he's in a a bunch of altman stuff like tanner 88 is one of the reporters and seeing him play sort of like the like kind of like the rebel without a cause like james dean type you know guy who just wants to read a book you know he wants to read like you know jack kerouac in a coffee shop and be you know hates his parents and uh he just got to get out of town, man. He's just got to get on the road on his bike. And I mean, it totally feels like that should have been Matt Dillon. I don't know why Matt Dillon didn't play that character. Maybe he was too famous by 1986 to be in another Coppola movie. Yeah. But it feels so like this should have been
0: the third Matt Dillon Coppola uh, you know, collaboration. Matt Dillon would have been great as that character. And Matt Dillon would have been able to, I, I feel bad calling it a feel bad calling it a problem, but he would have been able to solve one of the movie's problems because only he is able to shoo Sofia Coppola out of the movie. <laughs> Matt Dillon? Uh, <laughs> Matt Dillon, yeah. And other people try in this movie to shoo her out of a scene, but she keeps coming back <laughs> and having awkward line delivery that really... She's
1: fine. Leave, me. Leave little Sophia alone here. Like here, she's no longer listed as Domino here. She is Sophia Coppola here. Again, playing sort of the bratty little sister, which is the only role she's had so far in any of these movies, is sort of the obnoxious little
0: sister. And I think she does a pretty good job. So in Rumblefish, I think she is fine, right? She has fewer lines, but she is fine playing the bratty little sister. And we'll we'll talk about this when when we get to it in Godfather Three. I think she is fine and nowhere near as bad as everyone says she is. But for whatever reason, it, in this movie, I feel like her line delivery feels really like stilted and awkward. I mean, and she's she's fourteen. She's the only actual high school age person in this movie. Yeah. So it I'm. Is- it I'm is not...
1: fun to see her in a scene with her cousin nicholas there's a part where she quotes mo howard and says why i oughta and nicholas cage thinks that funny which is a weird running gag in this movie where some characters say why i oughta and everyone thinks it's hilarious like i guess he had to be
0: there um, but... <laughs> <laughs> and we get so i don't mean to to pick on sofia coppola but that is one of the uh <laughs> the things that sticks out about this movie and uh, and I feel bad. I feel bad, point it <laughs> out, but I have to point it out. But we'll move on. She, I mean, she, she is a good bratty younger sister. And then this is also one, uh, the other movie made in
1: 1986 starring Catherine Hicks, the other one being Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. She plays the other friend of, of Peggy Stowe. And you'll, yeah, she's the main lady in Star Trek for the whale researcher, you know, oceanographer, whatever you want to call her person. Uh, and she's a child's play as well. Um, and she's good. She's good in this movie too. Whatever happened to her, I feel like she was in movies in the 80s and then she's in movies that I don't know where she is. She's, I, she's, I find her to be an enjoyable, you know, lady.
0: Uh, she was, wasn't she? She was the mom on Seventh Heaven.
1: Oh, is that right? A mile.
0: I think yeah. that sounds correct. Yeah. So I never saw that show. Did I never you? watched it either. My uh, <laughs> my mom liked it. And then this movie
1: also has, and idea- I wonder if this is what Coppola brought to it, really good older actors that you haven't seen in a while. So like her mom is played by Barbara Harris, the great Barbara Harris, who is the mom in Freaky Friday. And she was in Nashville. And she's great as sort of, sort of like, the first person very confused as to why Peggy Sue is acting so strange and asking and seeing all these weird things and getting drunk because that's what grownups do, but not as a teenager. You shouldn't get drunk. And there's that great scene where her dad played by Don Murray comes home with his new car, the Etzel. Is that right? The 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 And, and And then he's made fun of her buying that car by Peggy Sue and he doesn't know why. He doesn't understand why this is so amusing to her that he bought this car. Um, Why is it amusing that he bought this car? I don't know. I don't know anything about the Etzel. So, like, is it a notoriously uh, lemon car?
0: I am not familiar with the (laughs) Etzel. I did not. I'm not
1: some car dude. I don't know. Uh, I did not look it up.
0: However, I didn't look it up. My wife did. There's a joke about, not even a joke, but a comment about red M&M's. Yeah. Kathleen Turner tells Sophia Coppola, don't eat the red Mm M&M's. She says, why? And Kathleen Turner says, they they turn your lips red. It turns out that the dye in the red M&M's had a chemical that was linked to cancer and caused them to ban red M&M's for a decade. And so at the time of the making of Peggy Sue got married, there were no red M&M's. So everyone in the world would have known that but I in the 21st century did not. And I was like, why doesn't she want to eat the red M&Ms?
1: Yeah, I remember that red dye was bad. And so that's, yeah, that's kind of a reference Lost of the Past, almost like the Etzel. Uh, uh, I, uh, I guess I looked it up because of technology. The Etzel was a card that was too expensive, used up too much gas and was mocked in the press. And it was just a total failure, so... That's why the father was fucked.
0: <laughs> I see here that the company was founded in 1956 and then it became defunct in 1959. <laughs> so it would have been like he bought like the last or He <laughs> bought it like right before the company was about to go bust.
1: And I wonder, like you said that the script doesn't change too much. I wonder if that was a Copal edition, him having recently trying to get Tucker a man in his dream made. And being like a dude who's into, you know, cars and stuff from the 50s, I wonder if that was a Coppola touch or that was just sort of like a coincidence that that was also.
0: I I wouldn't be surprised if if like those were the little touches that he that he was responsible for, because like I said, the biography doesn't really go too much into Peggy Sue got married. And because uh, we weren't able to get a hold of the DVD, I don't know what special features there were on it. I don't think there were any special features on the DVD. I don't the think DVD. there is either. I don't think there is. It's a full screen DVD. It doesn't even have an actual <laughs> widescreen transfer. So I can't imagine that there would Ew. have been special, a, a commentary for the pan and scan version of the movie. Um, but I love
1: uh, Peggy Sue's grandparents played by the great Maureen O'Sullivan, looking amazing as an old lady. And then her grandfather is Leon Ames, who you might know as the dad in Meet Me in St. Louis, a great movie. And there's a scene where he does a song in it. And then the most exciting one is John Carradine showing up as the head of like the, the Moose Lodge or the Elks Club or Masonic, whatever it is at the end, looking like the Crypt Keeper, looking like insanely old. <laughs> like weekend at Bernie's thing going on here. Like this must have been one of his last movies. because uh, he just looks like a mummy <laughs> he looks ancient but still great just like he so he's such an intense looking dude and he is running the crazy seance or whatever you want to call it at the end to get her to go back in time so yeah like this is definitely like a very more so like this is very much like the other couple of 80s movies where it's very much a character study and it's more about the performances and the actors than it is sort of like show filmmaking it's very much like I think uh, Outsiders or Cotton Club in that way where it's more about the characters than it is like wowing us with crazy visuals.
0: Uh, Supposedly, Coppola's biggest contribution to the movie uh, was, or his reworking of the script was he decided to de-emphasize the jokes in the movie. Hmm. And uh, so I guess it was a more jokey, like all out comedy movie. And decide to put those in the background and bring forth the like wistful nostalgia, and make it kind of a sad movie. Like still a comedy, but instead of like joke after joke, or, like oh, like in the future things are different, uh, you know. Like oh, like <laughs> in the past, like we still did this. That's so funny. There, there's still some of that, but, but what's what's really at the forefront. Is, is the emotional uh, journey of uh, of Kathleen Turner's character.
1: And that feels like, you can totally tell, and then Nicolas Cage shows up and bring his own movie to this movie. <laughs> I think now's the time to talk about the elephant in the room, Nicolas Cage's performance, crazy performance in this movie, which Absolutely is a notorious performance, his first this is definitely like looking at his song. This is like right after Valley girl and right after he did cotton club and stuff in like rumble fish. But this is definitely, I think the first like true Nicholas cage performance, like why we love Nicholas cage, why a lot of people hate Nicholas cage. I think this feels like the first like true cage showing up to, to a movie. Don't, don't you agree?
0: I totally do. Especially. Yeah. Looking at his IMDb page. Bally Girl, which I saw for the first time recently. Uh, Great movie. And it's good. And he is good in it. There's a scene where he's trapped in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Like he, he snuck, he got kicked out of a party and then he sneaks back in through the bathroom window. But then people come into the bathroom. So he hides in the shower and it's just a montage of him like being stuck in there because people keep coming in. And I would watch a whole movie of Nicolas Cage is <laughs> stuck in the bathroom. He is so interesting to watch in that scene anyway yeah this he's just playing like normal characters and in cotton club he's like the wild loose cannon but he's not making any crazy choices and Peggy Sue got married which he did not want to take because first of all he he already felt like he had this uh this chip on his shoulder this extra thing to prove because Francis Ford Coppola was his uncle and he wanted to act regardless of who his uncle was Mm-hmm. And when he was in in college, he felt like well, he had to like prove himself that yeah. he is capable of being an actor, being in movies on his own, which is why he changed his name from Coppola yeah. to Cage. And he wanted, and yeah, he was in uh, two movies for his uncle. He didn't want to do a third. He didn't want to be accused of nepotism when he'd have like a big a bigger role, be the male lead of the movie essentially. He also didn't like the script, the, uh, the uh, passages in the, in the biography, don't really get into why he didn't like the script. And so I imagine the way he was able to engage was by making these weird choices. Number <laughs> one, his voice. <laughs> what is it's up the, with his voice? It's like a crazy nasally
1: like almost like it's a voice you maybe would have expected a nerd character to have, but it's like it's it's like a cartoon. And I found it's a very weird choice. Kelly kind of talks up here. He's like, "Hey, oh, hey, how's it going?" And I found a clip of him on Conan O'Brien from 2007, where Conan is taught. It's when Ghost Rider came out, and Conan says, "Oh, you're so great," but I gotta say the the performance he made my friends loved and thought was a funny, funniest so was you and Peggy Sue so got married. Like, where the hell did that performance come from? And Nicholas Cage said that he based his voice on Pokey from The Gumby Show. And if you watch an episode of The Gumby Show and hear what Pokey sounds like, that is exactly the same voice. And that was, the for whatever reason, the choice for voice. And then, on top of that, he showed up on set with these giant false teeth. These huge, crazy-looking teeth. And so he's got huge fake teeth talking
0: up here. (laughs) And And then he has uh, his, his, his hairstyle, like, you know, 1960 hairstyle is like, so like puffed up pompadour. He looks almost like a Egon from the Ghostbusters cartoon.
1: Yeah. Like bleach blonde. And no one else in this movie is acting like he is. He is definitely like in his own place in his own thing. And I guess according to the Kathleen Turner autobiography, she was so upset by his performance, she went to Francis Coppola and was like, what's going on with her nephew? What is going on with his voice and these teeth? Like you have to you have to stop this. He's ruining the movie. (laughs) And clearly Coppola did not fix it. (laughs) Thankfully he didn't fix it. And then further she I guess Uh, accused Nicolas Cage of being arrested for drunken driving multiple times while making this movie and stealing a stranger's chihuahua and having the cops show up. Nicolas Cage sues Kathleen Turner for defamation of character for all of these statements, wins, and she has to make a public apology and a donation to a charity of his choosing.
0: Whoa. (laughs) I had no idea about all that.
1: (laughs) But I guess like a lot of like her she was so worried about his performance. It was like, what is he doing? Like he's trying, and I guess she, according to her biography, took Nicolas Cage aside and was like, why, like, hey kid, like, this is your big break, man. Like you're blowing it. You are ruining, you're never gonna be hired again. You're ruining this movie. Like what are these insane choices that you're making? They don't make any sense. (laughs) And when you read a lot of old reviews of the movie, the people, there's a lot of people that do complain about his performance and say that it's just too weird and it takes you out of the movie and it doesn't make any sense, except for Siskel and Ebert, who liked his performance quite a bit in this movie. Of course, Ebert has been a lifelong, was a lifelong Nicolas Cage fan. But that's not the only weird choice. He also like, there's a scene where he's creeping into the window of Kathleen Turner at night and he's doing this weird like Nosferatu thing with his fingers. Did you notice that? yeah. He's doing, like, you will be the scene like, where
0: he where he all, where he decides not to kill her.
1: Yeah, where he's like he looks like a like he's like he's it he looks like a villain like a monster and he's like creeping with these and no one's watching him. This is just how this character is walking into the house
0: with his. Yeah, it's a scene down. where they've uh, they, they've <laughs> broken up. There's so many times where Kathleen Turner like she decides like this relationship. She knows it's not going to go anywhere, so they break up. But then he like tries to win her back and she's like okay like fine we're back no you know what like like we have to break up because it's not going to end well and then one of those uh breakups he sneaks into her bedroom at night does like the nosferatu (laughs) walk like grabs a pillow and like holds it over her and then decides (laughs) not to and then wakes her up i mean maybe (laughs)
1: his character is supposed to be obsessed with vampires because when you first see him in the past, when she wakes up, he's doing like a Dracula impersonation. He's going like, blah, blah, and like creeping
0: around when she's giving blood. So maybe it was just him adding more <laughs> into that. Yeah, it's only two years away from Vampire's Kiss. That That's two years in the future. And the best,
1: I think his best scene, and he's great in this. I think
0: people are wrong. He's
1: great. And there's something really tragic and sad about his character, because his character really wants to be the next Fabian the next great pop star and not work for his dad at the appliances place. We do know eventually he just will get to the appliance place and not become a famous singer, but he's trying so hard and he's so desperate. And there's a scene where he performs in a club uh, in a black nightclub and he performs and there's like some record person there and he's like really excited. And the guy just like, no, you don't got a kid, sorry. And he's so sad. And that scene is great. But my favorite scene is when he's in the car with Peggy Sue and she decides she wants to have sex with him. And he is terrified about that idea and can't handle it (laughs) and (laughs) talks about his wang, actually says the word wang. And then does he just you you mean my wang? (laughs) (laughs) And just can't he just can't you know handle her trying to you know have sex with him he can't deal with it and then yeah and it's not him. like
0: it's so good he is like <laughs> so caught off guard by by her desire and by by the role reversal because we know that uh, by then they had already had a fight where previously like he wanted to have sex and she decided that she didn't like her her teenage version of herself before she flashes back. And now she is coming on to him and it's too much of a role reversal for him. And he says something like, all right, I'm going to try it. That's, <laughs> that's a guy's line, Peggy Sue. And he's trying to get the car started, but it won't start. And that's also like a reversal. Like the guy is trying to get the car started. So he won't have sex with the girl instead of pretending the car <laughs> <laughs> Instead, of pretending the car won't start, so they have to stay at makeout point or whatever.
1: <laughs> and it's a great scene. The writing in this movie is really good. It's written by Jerry L- like like I think you say his name and Arlene Starner, who are were a couple. And I guess she had recently gotten through a divorce, and then this was sort of like her dealing with that by writing the script with her new boyfriend slash husband or whatever. And uh, and it definitely comes out. And I think that is sort of like what really separates this from back to the future is like the ultimate tragedy of like, she just has to live the same life. She has to repeat it. Like she can't change anything really, because, because at the core of it, she loves her kids. She says that multiple times that like, she really, like the main thing of her life that she's so proud of is her children. And if she doesn't get with Nicolas cage, she will never have those children. And so it doesn't matter kind of what, a loser he is, or maybe come, or when he ultimately falls out of love with her and cheats on her, or whatever, she needs to still go through that, or else she will not have Helen Hunt, who she really cares about, which is like the ultimate tragedy of this movie. Of just like, you could go off with the cool biker guy, you could go off with the nerd who's beginning to become this rich person, but you won't have your children then that you really like. You have to go with Nicolas Cage.
0: Yeah, it's. Um that there, there's a melancholy to that, but also a maturity to that. Instead of, I'm going to live a, a, a more fun, exciting, different life. Like, this is what, you know, what the, the ultimately the right decision. And maybe, and this character, I think she knows that if she goes off with the beatnik with Kevin J. O'Connor, there's just as good a chance that she ends up you know, in an unhappy marriage and divorce from him as she does if uh, if she stays with, with Nicolas Cage. And there's a scene uh, that she has with Kevin J. O'Connor where like, yeah, he is like the real like outsider beatnik. He writes poetry, like moody guy and he's like deep and artistic. Uh, but then she like really spends time with him and realizes, oh right, but he's also a teenager at this point like his poetry yeah. is bad is <laughs> really bad it made me really i think glad. she actually I...
1: turns away from it and says oh god <laughs> yeah <laughs> the poetry. and then i really love the part when he starts going off being like man fuck my parents i gotta leave them behind and her being like wait a minute like you're gonna miss your parents like no no, no. like not like, oh, fuck your parents like you're gonna really regret you know like like you're you're gonna get along with your parents eventually you don't right now you know and she had like cause, cause, because because that's what's great about this movie is she has, like you said, like the mature adult perspective to everything that's going on. So it's like you have that part where she's like, what, like it's like where the angsty anti-parent stuff seems so silly, or when she's in school taking an algebra test and being like, I don't need this. I will never need this. There's nothing I will ever use in my life. Who cares if I fail this test? And uh, I love. And I think those scenes are handled so well. And I think maybe it was the wise decision of Coppola to take out maybe the more sillier, like describing what new Coke is or whatever joke would have been dated at the time to somebody. That, you know, can only imagine like what the dated jokes would be. And this is def- like definitely the most grounded Kathleen Turner performance. Like, like you said, she was in sort of this crazy film noir and like everything else that I've seen her in feels very like more heightened, like serial mom and like romancing the stone. And like this, like she's so human in this movie. And like, I feel like she wasn't really given a chance to play roles like this. Cause usually she would be cast as like the sexy lady or whatever. And like, she's so good in this movie. There's something really touching. I think about her performance.
0: You're right. Even in, <laughs> even in King of the Hill, she is cast as uh, as Buck Strickland's wife, as Hank Hill's boss's wife, <laughs> who is this like seductive character that tries to have an affair with Hank Hill. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she's Jessica Rabbit for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so like this is like that's usually because she has that voice, that kind of that great scarlet the same voice as Scarlett Johansson has, that kind of sultry, deeper voice. Uh, that, that melts men's hearts and, and <laughs> but here you know, it's great to see her
0: play just like a human being and her only oscar nomination for act best actress was for this movie or this, for this movie. performance
1: well that's a good transition to talk about the 1987 academy awards because this movie like again people writing off coppola's career in the 80s here's another movie made that was nominated for three oscars
0: God, like, what, a, like, can I have this, like, sellout, shitty, eye rolling career where I, I constantly kidding. make Oscar nominated movies?
1: Yeah, it was nominated for actress in a lead role, cinematography, like you said, and costume design for Theodora Van Runkle.
0: No, they're all in
1: any of them, but that's still pretty good.
0: Yeah, the fact that it's a it's a time travel fantasy comedy like that that movie that movie's a hit with audiences a, a, a hit yeah. with, with critics mostly yeah makes like great cool and it makes sense but then that this would get any academy awards attention yeah it, it is something extra special it means like it, it is. was that it was that steeped into the film-going mind of 1986. Yeah, this,
1: this movie was a hit. It made $41 million, which is no small change in 1986. Uh, his first hit since The Outsiders. Like, that's a lot of people seeing a movie in 1986. It made many people's best-of lists, Siskel and Ebert. It made it on both their best-of lists, high up on their list, too. They both love this. There You can watch the episode where they review it on YouTube. It's great. And they both just gush about how much they love this movie so much. And yeah, so it was nominated for Oscars. And it's just weird that people, I guess, forgot that when everyone keeps trying to like stink up Coppola's career in the 80s. This was another one. Like One from the Heart was nominated for an Oscar, as we talked about a few episodes ago. It's like he's making movies that are making money that are nominated for Oscars that like America is like embracing. How is that considered a failure? I don't understand. It seems like the perspective on his career needs to change. Like, okay, great. He it's sad that he owed a bunch of money and he made this movie initially because he owed money, but then he made it his own and made a really good movie. So we shouldn't talk about it anymore as just a movie he owed money from, like that, or you know, got money to you know, pay back. Like that's a weird way to still look at these movies because just like Rumblefish. This movie is great. It's its own unique thing. And we shouldn't even talk about it anymore that it was because he owed a bunch of money because he still made great movies. He could have sold out and made some garbage. And maybe he will later on when we get through his philosophy. But so far still, he's making these movies that feel
0: strangely personal, even though he didn't write them and didn't like initially try to make them. The the 80s for Coppola so far, I am enjoying. Even, even yeah. having not liked the uh, uh one from the heart and the, the cotton club they're still they're still interesting to watch mm-hmm. and they still there's still like real craftsman work done into it mm-hmm. um yeah it's i want to read this best actress lineup from 1986 so that the winner Please. is Mar- marley matlin for children of a lesser god yeah also nominated jane fonda for the morning after Sissy Spacek for Crimes of the Heart, Kathleen Turner for Peggy Sue Got Married, and Sigourney Weaver for Aliens.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) She was never best actress for that movie? That is awesome.
0: Yeah, that is totally... (laughs) I I did not know that she had an Oscar (laughs) nomination for Aliens. uh, I mean, which, like, yes to everything. (laughs) that is so awesome i had no idea aliens had any oscar nominations
1: and best actress which to me like for 1986 is pretty bold like that seems like a move they would do now where you're like oh like heath ledger winning for you know the batman sequel seems like an edgy thing but it's nominating weaver for aliens i think is also like but i mean they're right she's amazing in that movie yeah, honestly, she's sort of my pick out of that bunch
0: for the best actress. Uh, she's she's my my pick too, and I know it sounds obvious, and it's like yeah, like the dudes are gonna pick Sigourney <laughs> Weaver for Aliens, but it's Sigourney Weaver for Aliens. She's gonna like that's
1: an iconic role that she already had in the first one, but made it iconic and better with the second one.
0: Yeah, and Thank so you. like if if that, if they had to if the if there was a replacement and a different actress was playing Ellen Ripley in the sequel to Aliens, it would not work.
1: Yeah, and this was an interesting year for so like the movies, like this was definitely a big Children of a Lesser God year. Uh, this is the year where Paul Newman won Best Actor for Color of Money, which is a sequel, which is interesting. That's the Scorsese sequel to The Hustler didn't realize he won for that that's yeah that's interesting.
0: that's that's the the odd factoid is of well of course paul newman has an oscar what does he have it for a sea color old. of money <laughs> huh?
1: but then and then that lineup is great you have bob hoskins for mona lisa james woods for salvador william herford Chum lesser god and dexter gordon for round midnight very very and supporting actor yeah. michael kane wins for hannah and her sisters you also have Dennis Hopper, Willem Dafoe, Tom Berenger, Denholm Elliott, uh, Got supporting Got both actress, sergeants.
0: Both sergeants from Platoon are nominated. That's great.
1: <laughs> supporting actress, Diane Weist wins for Hannah and Her Sisters, Mary Elizabeth Mastriano for Color of Money, nominated Tess Hopper for Crimes and Heart, Piper Laurie from Children of a Lesser God, and Maggie Smith for Room with a View. Um, <laughs> crazy. So cinematography, lost for Peggy Sue Mary, but what won was the mission which is a great looking movie the 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 uh the Robert De Niro missionaries going to the jungle Roland Joffe film also uh, yeah. nominated was a room with a view platoon and Star Trek for the voyage home so both movies um, starring uh Catherine Catherine Hicks, nominated for cinematographer. So the camera loves a Catherine Hicks and the Academy loves a camera
0: that loves- She has a great smile It photographs (laughs) wonderfully.
1: And then costume design, which Peggy Sue was lost lost to a room with a view, the kind of the first really big Merchant Ivory movie, right? Wasn't that a room with a view? Like that was kind of their big first uh, thing. But then also the mission- Pirates the Roman Polanski Walter Matthau pirate movie have you ever seen that movie
0: no that is a
1: wild movie (laughs) check out if you want to see Roman Polanski directing Walter Matthau as like a drunk pirate please watch Pirates and then a version of Othello listed here as Othello uh directed by Franco Zeffirelli um makes sense yeah or no it's not based on a or it's it's the opera. Okay, so it's the Verde Opera Othello, but about the tale of Othello. Um, starring Placido Domingo. But what won Best Picture that year? What was the Best Picture of 19... Can you guess? Do you remember off the top of your head before uh, I look it up? I
0: know it was Platoon, 1986.
1: Platoon. And Best Director went to Oliver Stone for... This was like the first sort of arrival of Oliver Stone being the Oliver Stone that we know and love and slash hate is the rival of Platoon. Big crazy year for 80s movies. You have nominated with it, Room of the View, Children of the Lesser God the Mission, and Hannah and Her Sisters. So like very like grown up movies from 1986. Like this is like, these are movies for adults for sure. Very good. Yeah, Color of Money winning an Oscar. Very interesting. But uh, (laughs) yeah, Kathy Turner, Best Actress. I totally
0: agree. She's great in this movie. And the the reason that this movie has as much depth, as much substance as it does, is because of her performance. Mm -hmm. You you, you can write that uh, Peggy Sue looks uh, wistfully sad in this scene or whatever, but to really but to really make you feel that, like, oh, my high school boyfriend who I marry, like, let's just get this over with now and we can both have happy lives, but maybe thing, maybe I can do things differently this time. It's, uh, it, it, it takes a certain, a, a special talent or skill to, uh, to convey that. And yeah, I really think, I mean, I don't know what it would be like with Deborah Winger; she's great, but I think Peggy Sue Got Married only works as well as it does uh, because of Kathleen Turner in yeah. lead actress and and Coppola as the director.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder what it would have been like as a Jonathan Demme movie. I wonder. Like it definitely would have kept the humor because the movies he made around this time that were for grown ups still had like like something wild and married, married to, to the, the mob. mob like have these kind of like adult situations, but then they're also really, really funny and over the top of the Yeah,
0: you have Matthew Modine doing all this like action, action dives, like shooting a gun while he's diving, but he's in a Hawaiian shirt and short shorts. (laughs) It's hilarious. Uh, but, But like,
1: yeah, in 80, this came out in 86. This was the year that Demi did something wild. So like, I think it's good that he didn't do this because Something Wild to me is like, that's one of my favorite movies. And like, that feels so Jonathan Demme. And I think he made the right choice kind of going more into that kind of darker humor, weird direction that he did. And had Penny Marshall directed anything by this point? Like, would this been one of her first movies? If she was not directed in 86, like in, in her filmography as a director, I mean, she her first movie was... Um, Jumping Jack Flesh, which was 86. So I guess maybe this would have been her first movie if she had done Peggy Sue Got Married, but instead did the Whoopi Goldberg comedy, Jumping Jack Flash. So, which is a great movie. <laughs> but I wonder, <laughs> I, I wonder I what didn't work it. out. I wonder what didn't work out with her to make, like why this wasn't her first movie. Because it would have been interesting for sure to get a woman's perspective as a filmmaker for this film. And I feel you could totally... This is a movie you could totally remake and have a lady have a female director and like kind of make it more f- from that point of view. Like not that it doesn't do that with Coppola doing it, but it would have been maybe interesting to have a if a woman had directed this movie, what would that have been? What's different? What would have been different about it?
0: Yeah, that that is a good a good question. Um it is interesting to think about how this is a very uh Um, i'm not sure what the right phrase is like like female centric film like it's about this uh, woman and her emotions and coppola seems like he's always like wanted to make a movie about about the female emotions like that's what the rain people was supposed to be it was a, a and and what it is if if you think it works and i think it works on some levels not others the rain people was supposed to be three three women each at a different stage in their lives and then it's actually and then he uh got rid of two of the plot lines so it's just about one Mm -hmm. uh, woman on a journey facing the Mm -hmm. decision of does she want to live a traditional life like raising kids being married being nothing but a mother and a wife or does she want like something else. And she goes on a journey across the country to try and figure it out. And uh, what uh, You're a Big Boy Now, He Made Before That is, I mean, it's about a, a, a young man. But it is about like a, a young person trying to figure out what they want out of their life. And Peggy Sue Got Married does feel like it's kind of in that vein of I want to tell a very intimate story best told with a female protagonist. And is this
1: the last movie Coppola makes with a female protagonist? It may be like less feature. Yeah. Like I feel like his movies after this kind of tend to be more, you know, dude focused. It's not called Jacqueline. It's called Jack AJ. (laughs) So like, I think he makes movies about guys we uh, will be interesting to see if I'm proven wrong. And correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a while, isn't Kathleen Turner in The Virgin Suicides? She
0: is, yes. She's the mother. So
1: clearly, there was a connection between her and Sophia Coppola and how weird it must have been to co- show up like 15 years later and be directed by the person who played your younger sister in Peggy Sue Got Married.
0: That is... Wow. Yeah, that's gotta be weird. <laughs> like you're on the set so with this weird,
1: 14-year-old... <laughs>
0: And then you're in this, what I consider a great movie, directed by Sofia Coppola. That, um, um, yeah, The Virgin Suicide is one of my favorite favorite movies ever. It's one of the movies that sparked my huge crush on Sofia Coppola. Which we'll <clears throat> we'll save that for Godfather Three, but uh, <laughs> that continued
1: my huge crush on on Kirsten Dunst. So of Kirsten Dunst, so.
0: And James Woods. Forever had a crush on James Woods. <laughs> James Woods, there's something about him. You it's know. Something.
1: We love to hate him, but we keep loving him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, and it's worth noting, he's credited as Francis Coppola, not Francis Ford Coppola here.
0: Right, that um, is something, um, I don't know if I brought it up many episodes ago, but I should have, so I'll bring it up now. Uh, around the time he was making Apocalypse Now, for whatever reason, he decided, I am no longer Francis Ford Coppola, I am Francis Coppola and you will address me as such. (laughs) And in One From the Heart, I think is the first movie where he's Francis Coppola, but it's written in the the font of the Ford Motor Company. So he's still, like, kind of Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> but after that, he's just Francis Coppola. I don't know what... Then he um, brings it back. Eventually, it comes back. To yeah, Coppola. eventually it comes Ford back. Like, there. it's it says on the back of this wine bottle, Francis Ford Coppola Winery. Like, if he has control over anything, it's his own winery. Um, I, think, I think Apocalypse
1: I have, Now was the first Francis Coppola credit. Yeah. And for whatever, for whatever, like, I don't know if maybe there was another Francis Coppola and then he died. So he's like, I don't have to be Francis Ford anymore. Like someday, maybe there'll just be a William Macy because the other one will be gone. And we don't need to have a William H. Macy, (laughs) you know, know, claim your name back. Uh, But he does eventually bring the Ford back. I don't know which movie it is, but uh, maybe Godfather 3 just to make a match. Maybe that's the first one where he has the Ford back. I think it's definitely on Godfather 3. Just stop confusing people. If you have a name, you know, like when Little Bow Wow became Bow Wow, that was so confusing. Like, I hated that. Like, you're Little Bow Wow. It's
0: it's fine. Like, Little Wayne is a per. Like, he's a grown man. He's not, like, (laughs) Little. little, You know, we don't feel like Little Wayne. I don't listen to kid rap or hip-hop. I don't listen to that kind of music at all, so I don't know exactly what it's called. I apologize. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, I hear a little Wayne and they're like, oh, he's a man? Yeah, that's fine. Like, you can still be a little bow wow. Like, it's fine.
1: Wait, you're getting me confused. Little Wayne or Little Bow Wow? Which one are you talking about?
0: Or Little John, even. Little John little is John. He's the yeah guy. Cause I remember that Dave Chappelle skit. But
1: <laughs> well, like when Snoop Doggy Dog became Snoop Dog, it's like, just be Snoop Doggy Dog. It's fine. We still love you, we've always loved you. Just keep the name. If you're going to commit to some fake name, stick with that fake name. Like you're Larry Fishburne. Why, why Lawrence Fishburne? It's okay to call yourself Larry Fishburne. Like we still respect you. I don't know. Like there's like, who's the person that kept their silly name and it was great. I'm trying to think of like, who's someone that had their weird name, you know, like I'll forever respect that there was a band called the Beatles. It's a dumb name. And, but they kept (laughs) it. They could have, they could have like when they got serious and experimental and hanging out with, you know, Ravi Shankar, there could have been some cooler name, but no, they still, their dopey name, the Beatles spelled as if there was a beat like from a song, but then they're the bug. It's a dumb name, but they're the greatest rock band of all time. And if
0: I, um, them, uh, I will say, and I am a huge, <laughs> huge Beatles fan, and I'm trying not to expose my kids to too much Beatles music for fear feel that they will, uh, you know, rebel against me by not listening to Beatles music. My kids are three. But uh, yeah, I never, as huge a fan as I was, is like, okay, um, well, it's just like bands were the whatever. And I guess they were all taken. So they went with the Beatles and, oh, you spelled it. It's supposed to be a pun. Okay. It's a terrible name. Whatever. I don't, name. <laughs> I don't get it. Like, I never cared about the beat in Beatles or Long John and the Silver Beatles or whatever the hell. This could have been the quarryman
1: still go as Bobcat Goldthwait for the movies that he directed? Does he still refer to himself, or is he a Robert Goldthwait? No, he's still Bobcat. That's, see, that's great. I respect that he was like, okay, this is like the name I came up with, this is a crazy character in the 80s when I did stand-up. Now I'm making legit good movies, like movies that I think are great as a director, and he's still referred to as Bobcat. That's that's wonderful. Like He could have been like, no, no, I'm now Robert Goldthwait. But him, no, he kept it as a bobcat. That's because that's how we know him. But don't change it up. Don't confuse
0: me. I'm waiting for the, uh, I'm waiting for the like totally serious prestige drama about uh, whatever, you know, about whatever the Iran-Contra deal directed by Robert zumbiskowitz <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Robert's uh,
1: Rob Zombie changed his name? He was offended of
0: this. His real name, I, I I'm pretty sure his real name is Robert Cunningham. Uh, I just make that I make that joke uh, for two reasons. One, because if you change your name to something like cool or something easy to pronounce, it's because you originally had a very quote unquote ethnic name like Richie Valenzuela, Richie Valens.
1: I, I fully support him. Change his name to Robert Zombowitz. I think that
0: was. Second reason is in the uh, in the <laughs> critic cartoon, in the Siskel and Ebert episode, there's a, a little like short film about the history of Siskel and Ebert and you find out their real names are uh, like Janely Siskeliskan and Rogelio Ebertowski. <laughs>
1: In Ellis Island, they're like, No, 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 your name is Ebert. Yeah. <laughs> we're not gonna try to say that. My family had the weird thing where they were called when they came from Sicily, they were they were Gerana, And for whatever reason, that was too much for whatever idiot stamping papers to handle. And he's like, No, 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 you're Girano, you're Italian, it's Girano, not Gerana. I was like, Oh, okay. So <laughs> I
0: That's weird. It. I have a friend change one vowel. I have a friend whose whose name last name is D Geronimo, capital D, little i, capital G, Geronimo, because her grandfather Greek grandfather was from from Geronimo, and then of course the guy Ellis Island was like, this is just one word, this is just one name, you're fine. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it's so it's so (laughs) easy to just make a space. Especially if you're writing it down, it's just as easy if you like hit space that's like takes like less than half a second to hit the space bar on a computer or a word processor. It takes even less time to move your hand slightly over or to like round out, like add a little tail onto this letter instead of just rounding it out.
1: Well, I'm glad that Francis Ford Coppola went back to using the Ford. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. be proud of your full damn name.
0: Right. That's where we
1: started. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one more thing I want to mention about this movie that I'm done is I really like the John Barry soundtrack. And he also did this music for, I think, the Cotton Club. Does that seem right? Yes. And he would be most famous to people as he did like the bulk of the great James Bond music. And uh, like the famous, like not the theme song, that was Monty Norman, I think was the name of the person who wrote that song. But uh, the John Barry music in this, especially in the part when she wakes up uh, in the past for the first time, feels so James Bondy. Like that song could totally be played in a scene where Sean Connery, you know, is like in a villain's lair. <laughs> it has this kind of like great, I'm trying to think, I'm, I'm an idiot, so I don't know how to talk about music with words. But uh <laughs> It just has a great, like he had, like he has a very unique sound, John Barry. And the soundtrack to this is really good. Like it's, and it's not what I really appreciate about this movie is it could have gone the American graffiti route and really layered on like constant oldies songs. And there are a lot in there, but it's mostly performed by people on stage. Like there isn't a lot of like, oh, remember that song and oh, that oldie and that great, like, let's hear Mr. Sandman or whatever. And it doesn't do that, which is great. Like it's like there is still some there, but it's not laid on too thick, which I really like about it. Like it does have an actual score, and for the moment it hasn't been changed. Maybe Coppola will go back and do a redux of this one next <laughs> and uh, change the soundtrack. But I really appreciated the John Barry music. I thought it was really good, especially in the scene two at the end when they're in the lot in the lodge. Like I really like all that music.
0: I, I really like the use of the uh, the older music, and I love that it was so. Um, it was very much like the. Uh, I mean, not quite duop, but like the band was just an entirely vocal band. Like it, uh, mm-hmm. they had aside from Nicolas Cage and Jim Carrey, there were like three other guys each singing in a different uh, in a different register. It was that kind of music, and like American Graffiti, which is sixty-two you know but and there's so many different styles of music in there but it's uh just sounds more familiar because it's so guitar based and the music here like uh Dion and Fabian it's so like just the voice it -hmm. just sounds extra extra from the past like I don't Mm -hmm. and I, I like this music I like like Dion it just feels like so like further back even than the music in American Graffiti like even like the Beach Boys hadn't broken out yet
1: yeah this is pre-Beatles pre-Beach Boys where it still was sort of like I guess you could probably guess that like the greaser guy in this movie listened to like Elvis or Gene Vincent or something like that but like it definitely still has that kind of like like yeah that kind of pop idol crooner kind of music was what the like at least the characters in this movie are into that kind of like maybe yeah there's like a little bit of like a buddy holly in there of course because of the title but it has like it still has that 50s nostalgic sort of like quote-unquote innocent time of america before you know the 60s feel to it and it's nice too to have a movie that takes place in 1960, and it doesn't end with a bunch of title cards saying that they all died in the Vietnam War, um, <laughs> <laughs> which does happen in <laughs> these kind of movies. And it's funny I couldn't help, but when watching this, kind of think about George Lucas a bit, and sort of like I know that I don't know if we talked about this one we, because we've met, we've talked about George Lucas before in on this podcast, just because him and Coppola were such tight homies at one time and still are, but like. Wondering, sort of like, what kind of movies would he have made if he had not just gotten sucked into Star Wars for the rest of his life? You know, like if he had gone from American Graffiti to Star Wars, and say, what if Star Wars failed? Would he have made? Would have Peggy Sue got married? Would have interested him? Like something that took place, kind of in the late '50s, has these kind of cars in it, has this kind of music in it, like these, you know, like because like American Graffiti is another great sort of, yeah, movie that takes place in, I think that's 60, isn't that movie also 1960? 62, the tagline was, where were you in 62? And it just has that, you know, like that like he could have done wonders with like a Back to the Future. Not that that movie's not amazing. That's an amazing movie. It's a Max did a great job. But like, I kind of, it's weird. Like watch this movie, my brain went to, what would George Lucas done in the 80s if he was in Coppola's situation? If Star Wars had failed and he had owed all this money but still had this artistic integrity to make interesting things. What would he have made something like the outsiders or like a Peggy who got married clearly interested in the nostalgia of his own past. Um, like may, would he have made another zeitgeisty sort of movie like Coppola, because Coppola to me is making sort of these movies that feel like, what is the normal thing? Post-American graffiti? Like like outsiders is so but almost like like that. And Rumblefish is sort of like the anti-American graffiti, but it kind of feels like it's kind of like it just kind of looking back at the 50s and 60s in a certain way. And I just wonder if if Lucas would have gone that route if he if he wasn't busy making ewok
0: things. Yeah, that's one of one of the great questions <laughs> that I wonder about. Like, every time I love American Graffiti, it's one of my favorite mm-hmm. movies. And it's one I saw, I just caught on TV by accident one time. I had no idea what it was. It's like, well, is that a young Richard Dreyfus? And that's definitely <laughs> Ron Howard, because he's always looked like Ron Howard, even when he had hair. He's still Ron Howard. And I'm watching it. And then the ending happens and yeah, there's the captions of like, died in a drunk driving accident, (laughs) got drafted, died in Vietnam, sells insurance, lives in Canada. And then, and it made, and I forever feel this way when I hear the Beach Boys all summer long, that is, Mm -hmm. is actually a tragic song. Yeah. 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 We've been having fun all summer long and like, yeah, they had fun. And then we got to grow up, which means some of you got to die and some of you got to just live like a boring, normal life. <laughs> and uh, like, Oh, like, yeah, you don't always conquer the world. Sometimes you just sell insurance in Modesto, California. <laughs> and as like a 16, 17 year old, I was like hit so hard by that. Yeah. I, I, and I wonder every time I would watch that movie, Abelkin video, I, I would tweet out. Uh, like I'm watching the best George Lucas directed movie, American graffiti to try and like get a a dig at people and see what reactions (laughs) are. Fortunately, I don't have enough Twitter followers for that to actually (laughs) matter because I'm sure I would just be dealing with hate for the rest of my life. (laughs) But there is a serious part of me like, yeah, I don't, I cannot deny the, you know, epoch changing, (laughs) nature of star wars right but i watch american graffiti and to me that is a more mature quality film and i wonder like where is this guy like where's this guy like
1: if you if yeah if george lucas had lived the peggy sue got married scenario and like fainted you know while receiving the billion dollar deal to sell star wars to disney and passed out in that that boardroom woke up <laughs> in like 1977, about to start his first day on the set of or '76 to make uh, Star Wars. That's a movie. Someone should make that movie. You remake Peggy Sue Got Married about George Lucas, and does he make the decision to do it, or does he now knowing sort of how it takes over his life, does he take the other path and say like, you know what, forget it, I'm gonna make something more personal and little and weird. And I don't know if I mentioned this when we talked about George Lucas almost directing Apocalypse Now in that episode. But like like Coppola has been very vocal about how disappointed and sad he was in the direction that that George Lucas's career took. Because he always claimed that he like Lucas was one of the best experimental, interesting filmmakers, like coming out of the Southern California film scene at the, the time. Th- the, 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 the short
0: THX. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And like he just had all this potential and then he just got stuck on star wars and was there you know for the next you know 40 something years so it's it is definitely something that coppola still even as still friends with lucas still kind of laments and is sad about like i wonder what 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 would he have made what would he have done what would the 80s be like if lucas had been made because that's the great thing about talking about color of money in this movie like All these directors like post 70s was them having it all and like giving the keys to the kingdom. And then that kind of fell apart. It kind of combusted. And then they all kind of in the 80s make these weird little movies, these weird sort of choices like Scorsese doing Color of Money and After Hours and King of Comedy and these kind of smaller, strange movies and Coppola doing what he's been doing. And it's just sort of interesting to wonder like what if George Lucas is in the same boat as those guys like what weird little movies would he be
0: making like the 80s feels like the fallout of the 70s -hmm. we made our movies too big we made them too artistic and so then yeah Coppola has to make uh, do these jobs for hire you know uh, and like sell out quote unquote and Scorsese bombs with uh, New York New York but then I mean, makes a really artistic triumph with with Raging Bull, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But then has to make like After Hours and King of King Comedy is a movie you only make by choice, but it's still like really weird and Color yeah. of Money, which, yeah. feel, which is a very like mainstream movie. But then yeah. it feels a little weird because it's kind of a Scorsese movie, but it's yeah. kind of yeah. just a normal big budget marquee movie. Yeah, and Spielberg makes, and I mean, I, Col- Color Purple is a good movie. Mm-hmm. Right? It's great, but it's it just feels weird that it's a Steven Spielberg movie, and then yeah. Spielberg would make like Empire of the Sun in yeah. all ways, and I'm like what the fu- and he didn't have a big. Well, he bombed with nineteen forty one, but he still then had hits after that. Mm-hmm. And it, the eighties were just a weird time mm-hmm. where the filmmakers of the seventies continued making movies, but they were all a little different <laughs> they a- weren't
1: making the same like classic quote unquote classic hollywood movies and i think that's the problem i think people with coppola is like if you make the godfather movies and apocalypse now anything you make after that's going to pale in comparison no matter how hard you try because cuz those it's rare that someone made movies as good as those three movies in the 70s like like the fact that coppola made three amazing masterful hollywood classics you know in the same decade if like no matter what you do in the 80s people are going to be like oh that's not as good as the godfather like they'll constantly be compared it's like the same problem that orson welles had it's like no matter what you make it's never going to be as good as citizen kane in most people's eyes so like even though touch evil Life feels better people are going to always be kind of like comparing it to your masterwork. you know it would be like if uh <laughs> like um if Leonardo da Vinci, like the, after the Mona Lisa, just started making like really good sandwiches. And it's like, we love those sandwiches and they're the best sandwiches we ever had, but it's no Mona Lisa, you know, like you get like,
0: to like the best thing ever. But uh, right. And yeah. Lucas spends the 80s and almost all of the 90s not directing, but producing. Yeah. Which in one way is like, he's doing what Coppola did for him Uh, letting different people new people make movies I'm going to help them make movies help these other movies get made Uh, and that's like one way to look at his 80s and 90s producer career but then also you just feel like we're missing out like he helped you know he partnered with Steven Spielberg and they he produced uh, Raiders and the Indiana Jones movies and they uh, both of those guys produced the Land Before Time. Uh, Willow. Movie. Willow's a
1: great movie. Willow, Willow yeah. Howard, directing. Uh, Howard the Duck is a great movie. Radioland Murders. He did take chances as a producer. Yeah. But like, I wonder if he just, I, he seems
0: like a guy maybe who doesn't like directing. Like, maybe it's not fun for him. Because I like, hope his directing style, and if I've done this before, you're going to hear me do it again. Richard Dreyfuss's impression of George Lucas directing is whatever interview this was he looks at the camera and says oh you want to see you want to see what George Lucas is like directing okay and he holds one elbow like he holds his uh, right elbow with his left hand and then just stands there and stares forever and then says <laughs> you want to do it again okay <laughs> and then again just standing there kind of slumped over saying nothing <laughs> one more time okay and then at some point and Richard Dreyfus said like he he didn't know what he did in the take where George Lucas look then looks up and says all right that's it we got it <laughs> And uh, uh, the little guy, Charles Martin Smith, who plays Terry the Toad in American Graffiti, there's a scene where he uh, uh, is waiting for a guy to buy him, him liquor at this uh, drugstore. Mm-hmm. And the guy runs out, throws a liquor bottle to, to Charles Martin Smith. He catches it. And then the shop owner comes out and shoots at the, <laughs> shoots at the guy with, with a gun. And that's the punchline. <laughs> And they did that, they just kept doing that again and again and again, until Charles Martin Smith finally almost m- doesn't catch the bottle and catches it right before it hits the ground. Guy runs away, shop owner shoots at the guy and George Lucas <laughs> says, that's it, we got it. <laughs> so like in a way that that technique is fascinating because I feel like that's, if I was to finally ever get to direct a movie, that's how I would direct a movie. I know what I want. I can't quite explain it to you. Let's just do it until it finally happens. You're like a Stanley Kubrick. You would just until you beat the performance
1: out of the poor actor or actress. Yeah. See, I'm an Ed Wood. If I take one or two, if it's good enough, move on. Time is money. It's <laughs> real her. life. Like if you, you cast with the right person, every the is done. You don't need them to do a million takes. Just two takes, be done go to the next take. <laughs> like three at most. You do you do one that's the script, one that's the script more fine-tuned and then a wild card and then you move on. That's, that's how many takes all directors should do. Um, <laughs> well, thanks for uh, doing that 20 minute George Lucas tangent with me. I was very happy to talk
0: about that. Um, <laughs> me too, we could do a George Lucas season. No. I don't want to watch all those prequels again.
1: Well, and then also people forget that he didn't direct the really good Star Wars sequels. He just produced them. Like yeah. Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. He didn't direct those movies. Someone else did. I mean, I guess you could argue that he kind of backseat
0: directed, but like you'd be go- literally going from the first Star Wars to the Phantom Menace. No, man, it was all Irving Kushner, man. Yeah. You want and- your se- You want to make a good sequel, you find Irvin Kushner. Also did RoboCop 2, a great sequel. Exactly. Is there anything
1: else about Peggy Sue Got Married that you want to throw in? I'm done. I took us on a George Lucas tangent, which I was happy to take. But is there anything about the movie that this episode's actually about that you have to say?
0: It's all staying in. Um, Just that the the jokes about uh, how things are different in the present in the 80s compared to the 60s are pretty funny they're fun they're not too like elbow in the ribs uh kathleen turner she's talking to the nerd character who the character is richard Norvik, played by barry miller who was in last temptation of christ and uh other work he's a character actor he was in saturday night fever and fame uh and she's talks to him because he's well you know about science do you know about time travel And she gets him to believe her. And so then she tells him about stuff in the future. And because he's famous for making uh, like a device that helps uh, deaf people uh, hear or deaf people talk, uh, she tells him about other things. And so he's taking notes. He's like, okay, like this, this, and Waka mans, okay. (laughs) And she says like, in the future, everything gets small except for radios radios get big for some reason everything else gets small (laughs) and if you were a kid in the 80s like me you remember the gigantic boom boxes yeah 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 so it's it sounds if you were to watch Peggy Sue got married now if you're younger than me it might sound weird but that is totally true in the 80s stereos and radios got gigantic yeah everything else got small <laughs> uh, yeah, and so she that- helps him
1: invent uh, pantyhose. Like talks to him about pantyhose. Like, you should invent pantyhose.
0: That part's funny. Yeah, uh, yeah that, so that- I love
1: that whole that whole part with her and that nerd guy, and sort of trying to help him. Like, it's a different, like in the Back to the Future movies, it goes into like we could bet, like especially in part two, it's like we could bet on the like this person Raining the World Series and make money. And I like this one is just like, you already know this guy's gonna become rich and famous. But she's like, no, like, I'm gonna help you even more. And then it kind of even plays in with that stuff with him that, like, maybe this already happened. Like, the way things play out at the high school in the beginning could still be the same based on how she is in the past. Like, nothing really would have been that different. Like, if she it had encouraged him and that's why he became famous and rich, if it, if it all already happened
0: you know yeah, it's the, like a terminator sort of the thing. final thing i get terminator bill and ted this has to happen <laughs> because we already did it yeah kind of thing bill and ted is a much smarter movie about time travel than people give it credit for so yeah so my final thing is uh, or well one thing two things three things <laughs> red fish blue fish uh this is maybe one of the few movies where it turns out it was all a dream and it's it's satisfying it's like the wizard of oz and this movie right like any other movie where it was all a dream or the vision of someone as they're dying i i just feel like so like robbed and angry at but uh but Peggy sue got married in the wizard of oz where it's like it was all a dream I'm like okay yeah that's good great although and this leads me to my other final point was it all a dream no
1: it wasn't because of the autograph in the book by the beatnik guy because he references the night under the stars i mean i guess you could think like maybe that did happen anyways and they had a weird thing and she just never told anybody but in the earlier in the movie she says like oh i would. the only i wish i had slept with that beatnik dude like, he was the one that I, like, he was, like, the one that got away.
0: And, and then, the then end she of does sleep
1: he, with him. They spend the night together. Under the stars, like, kind of out in the outskirts of town. And then at the end, when she's older, he, she, she's given a book. And in the inscription, it says, like, the night, like, something about the night under the stars. So, like, to me, that's, like, it did happen. But it could also be that it did happen anyways. And we just didn't know that it was real that she has never told anybody because why would she it was a private thing in her life once the theory i had while watching this movie is what if the stuff in the future is the dream and the stuff in the 50s is what really happens that she's she's giving blood and passes out and has this vision of her future of all the things that she was currently dealing with falling apart and then in the end falls asleep again and has the dream of the future again where it works
0: out better because she worked out things better in the past oh now we're getting (laughs) deep man this is like david lynch mulholland drive (laughs) territory just saying that could that could be a way to
1: read this movie it could it could (laughs) doesn't matter it works either way like Whether you think it's a dream or not. I also don't think it's a dream of Wizard of Oz. I think she went to some other dimension, like Alice in Wonderland sort of place. And then they just dropped her back in her bed. So the next episode is going to be an interesting one. In our journey through Coppola, we've kind of hit a part where he's doing a bunch of weird little things that aren't feature length movies that we're going to kind of cover all at once because they're all around the same time. So we're going to talk about the great... If in your, whose opinion, I don't know. Captain EO, the Michael Jackson ride for Disney World, which Coppola directed. We're going to watch it. We're going to talk about it. And then he also did an episode of fairy Tale Theater of Rip Van Winkle. And he played or maybe directed an episode of SNL during the strange season 11 that starred Robert Downey Jr., Randy Quaid, Joan Cusack, and Anthony Michael Hall. So we're going to cover those three odd little trajectories in the next episode. I'm very excited. to kind of, This is going to be a different sort of thing. Because we, we haven't really done this. We haven't really done a grab bag uh, Coppola episode. And uh, this will be fun.
0: Yeah, it's uh, w- we saved all these little things uh, for fear that for fear that we wouldn't have enough to talk about. I know what you're thinking. (laughs) 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 But yeah, we we actually were afraid we wouldn't have enough to talk about about a a bunch of short things on their own. So uh, we saved them all up. We're gonna talk about them together, see what's going on, if if we can connect anything. Uh, uh, I've never been on Captain EO or or seen it. So I'm uh, interested to see what that's all about. Yeah, it was a it was a strange time in Coppola's career where he was he was the most active but doing stuff he maybe didn't necessarily want to do but then ended up doing it all very well. So we'll see mm-hmm. how these short things a TV episode, a theme park ride and an episode <laughs> of TV Turned and it's forward. around the
1: same time this is like 85 86 so we're still in the same we're still going in chronological order in a way same era yeah yeah so yeah it'll be interesting to see if these are also great or if this is finally when we see him just cashing a check i don't know i don't think we will but i'm excited either way and then we'll jump back into his features but this will be a fun little you know side project in a way
0: cool um, all right so um Brian, where else can we find you? Well, actually,
1: I'm going to throw a promotion back in your face because we're doing the World is Wrong podcast with AJ on as a special guest. So that's the other show I do where me and my good friend Andres Jones review movies that the World is Wrong about. But we did a special Oscars episode because the Oscars are coming up in just a few weeks. And we, and I was absent, but Andres sat down with AJ and did a good Many, many hours talking about the pros and cons of the Oscars. I think it's the best episode we've ever done, probably because I'm not a part of it and I hate hearing my voice. But (laughs) I'm excited. Tune in. That's coming out. Uh, Around the time this episode comes out, we're around the time of that episode coming out. So, yes, please check that out. Uh, We're doing a whole Oscar month. We, we, uh, We did an episode where we said, don't watch Mank, watch the cat's meow. We did an episode uh, called Don't Watch uh, the Trial of the Chicago 7, Watch the November Men. And then now uh, we're doing this Oscars thing. And then we're hosting our own Oscars alternate episode called The Oscars, which AJ is also part of. We're picking the actual movies that should have won the awards for Best Picture and so on. But the Oscars were too cowardly to embrace and the raspberries too snobby to say we're good. So... That's the, uh, exciting. So where can we find you AJ?
0: The Oscars, <laughs> the no Oscars, Noskers. Oscars was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad I got to be a part of that. Um, yeah. you can also find me blogging about the current year's Academy Awards on Cinema Then and Now blogspot.com. I'll also be reviewing those on Letterboxd. I'm uh, uh AJGO85 on Twitter at the same thing, though I don't really use Twitter anymore because uh, it's it's really not good for anything anymore <laughs> anyhow <laughs> anywho I like talking about movies so I'm on letterboxed uh, you can find me there nice and uh, yeah tune in next uh, time for our grab bag episode of Coppola shorts he-